team have been investigating the attempt by President Trump and his allies to reverse his defeat in Georgia pretty much since February 2021, just a few weeks after Trump placed that famous call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. That call, I think, sort of metaphorically perked up her ears and she announced uh, that she would investigate just a couple of weeks later. We know that it is a sweeping investigation. Two and a half years is a long time. It's uh, a smart bet at this point, although they have not said so officially, that the, the charges that we're going to see in Atlanta are going to be racketeering charges, which is a really complex legal tool. It's it's similar to conspiracy, but you know, whereas conspiracy is a charge of two or more people getting together to plan a crime, um, a racketeering enterprise is two or more crimes. So and happy Monday, and welcome to the deal. I'm your host Ed Clark. It's Monday. August 14, 2023. We are not here on Saturday like we usually are. We're here on Monday. Uh, the reason why we're here on Monday is there was so much going on the weekend. We decided to wait uh, because we were hoping that there would be uh, a fourth indictment. <laughs> At least I would. I don't, I don't want to speak for Val. Uh, that's Val Atkinson, uh, uh, co-host of the deal with me. Val, uh, on the lead-in uh, to the program, uh, the the uh, clip we played coming in was the possible imminent indictment number four for number 45 uh, in Fulton County, Georgia, with uh, Fannie Willis, uh, the, the DA. And what I heard just only minutes before we started recording this, and we are recording this on Monday uh, afternoon, is that uh, they asked the jury, the grand jury, to stick around. Uh, go get some dinner because there's still with some more witnesses they need to hear from. And this time they're hearing from witnesses who are uh, related to some voting machines that they tried to abscond with. Now I want to talk about that. So first, uh, welcome back to the deal. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good to be here. And, and I'm glad you chose that as number one to go into because that leads into all the rest uh, that has a connection uh, to everything we've been talking about with Trump uh, and even special counsels uh, and going into Kushner, uh, Biden, it handled, it's a precursor to all of the rest. So I think this is a wonderful place to start. Yeah, it definitely is a precursor, Val, because here's the thing. Uh, the folks in Fulton County, who it appears that Fonnie Willis is uh, directing her attention to now, were part of this very large scheme. Uh, some of it was these fake electors. Uh, some of it was trying to take voting machines. Uh, so, and, and, and most of it was just about lying, where they lied on the election workers and said that, you know, Rudy Giuliani famously said that, these election workers are, were pulling votes from underneath the table that resulted in people threatening their lives. And, and we saw in the one six testimony where they, you know, they call had to call the police because people were showing up at their door, threatening their lives. And then Rudy Giuliani, just within the last couple of weeks, has admitted he made the shit up uh, that that, that you know, uh, he, he was just saying stuff. And they're trying to couch all of this as a free speech thing. So let, let, let's talk about, he's been indicted three times already, Val. So let's get the brass tacks here. First real question. What happens if Fonnie Willis indicts Donald Trump? These are state charges. Even if he were to be reelected president, what does that mean? Uh, can he still get out of this? Now, because he's already called the the governor of Georgia, every name in the book. So you think that governor's going to, uh, you know, uh, pardon him or whatever else? Uh, tell me about what's really likely to happen with this Georgia thing. Well, first of all, it's a state charge. 
and which means that it can't go to the Supreme Court. That's number one. Number two, although governors have pardon powers that are not unlike the ones that the president has, uh, in Georgia, there is a commission that has been set up by the executive branch to oversee pardons. So the governor of the state of Georgia does not within himself have the authority to unilaterally go in and make a pardon decision as to who he's going to pardon or not. Now the commission that's been set up could do the same thing, but that commission is not under the control of the governor at this particular time. So that makes it the everything kind of binding for Mr. Trump here. Uh, the, the other thing is that in this particular case, it is run, running concurrently with all of the other cases, uh, uh, talking about documents and uh, the, the 1-6 and uh, the young lady who's refiling her sexual assault and defamation uh, suit and that sort of thing. So it's a lot of pressure on the attorneys here that, that represent Donald Trump. But the biggest piece is the one that I mentioned first, Ed, is that this case is outside of the preview of the United States Supreme Court. That has been the backstop that Donald Trump has depended upon if all else fails and all else goes awry. The Supreme Court is sitting there with a six to three conservative majority that can override and declare that the ruling that is before them was not constitutional or should not stand or whatever the language might be to overturn a conviction by the uh, the courts of the state of uh, Georgia. So uh, he's in big trouble when it comes to this. Now, to answer your first question about what does this mean if he's convicted and goes to jail? Well, we're in uncharted waters here because and a person who has secret service protection has never been put behind bars. So that means that it has to be decided whether or not if, if, if Trump is convicted on state charges and sentenced to real jail time, whether or not the Secret Service uh, will still have responsibility for his protection or maybe that protection should resume on the day he's released from uh, custody. We don't know. That's that's my opinion. I think that's the way it should go. We got safety and protection by having him in jail. But those are huge questions that someone is going to have to answer before it is determined whether or not Trump is a viable candidate and, God forbid, whether or not he could serve as president if he's elected and he's behind bars. A uh, lot of questions still up in the air, and no one has the answer to yet, Ed, because it's a constitutional issue that has not been gone through before. Yeah. You, you know what? Uh, first, I want to remind folks here listening to or watching the deal with Ed Clark and Bell Atkinson. It's Monday, August 14th, 2023. We're here today because we were hoping that this was going to be indictment day number four, but, but it still hasn't happened yet. It still could happen uh, uh, today, but more than likely later on in the week. And on a serious note, we are in uncharted territory, Val. This is, you know, nobody's contemplated, you know, uh, necessarily what would happen if you had a rogue president like this, because all the other presidents have all just, they lost or their time was up, they left and didn't try to hang around, except for this guy, Donald Trump, who has decided that, you know, under whatever way he could do it, he was going to stay, whether it meant, you know, people taking up arms for him, whether it meant people being phony electors or, or saying the vote was rigged when he knew it wasn't. Uh, one of the things that, Val, that I also saw 
today. We didn't talk about it in the show prep, but I did see an article uh, from two lawyers from the Federalist Society, and the Federalist Society are they're as right wing as you can get, but they have a st- they have a paper that's going to come out either tomorrow or Wednesday that says Donald Trump has already been disqualified under the Fourteenth Amendment. That that what he did was so egregious. It it was a an it disqualifies him under the 14th Amendment under insurrection, which I think is in the Article 3 of that, that says that if you if you foment an insurrection, you automatically disqualify. Uh, again, you're the historian, and, and I may be catching you a little bit off guard, but think about, you know, after the Civil War for me and, and, and why they disqualified certain people from, you know, being able to hold office. Can you talk a little bit about what, what was going on at the end of the Civil War and why that was put into the 14th Amendment? Absolutely. Uh, well, the fear was among the Union, uh, the United States of America, the winners of the Civil War, was that you would have some people who fought for the Confederacy uh, that was not very pleased about the outcome of that war and would maybe try to overthrow the government from within or start another insurrection uh, with the same people that they had already having the base for that organizational uh, conclusion there. Now, what the uh, language basically said was that you must accept the 13th Amendment. You must pledge allegiance to the United States of America. And you must sign an oath that you will never take up arms against the United States of America again. Now, that is to hold down insurrection. That's that's basically what that was for. Well, it didn't hold it down uh, completely because you had the Klan and a whole bunch of other organizations to come about and do some things. And you had people to stop the reconstruction and go back into uh, slavery with another name and those kinds of things. But at the end of the war, the Confederate officers were allowed to keep their horses, their sidearms, of course, enlisted personnel were forced to give up their sidearms. They could keep their horses. Uh, This was allowing them to go back and start work to feed and support and protect their families. But their their concern primarily was to make sure that they did not have the tools or weaponry to start another insurrection. So they made it so that they could not hold office. Uh, It was written into the Constitution, written into the agreement, that they could not hold office if if they had been served as an officer in the Confederate uh, military. And so a lot of these people could not go back and run. And that was one of the reasons why there were so many African Americans that were elected to Congress at that particular time. These people were not allowed to run for office. Then, of course, after Reconstruction ended, a lot of things changed and it sort of went right back to where it was before. I'm glad we got a history part in there because I think that's important that, you know, we frame this because here's the, here's the second piece of it, Val. Uh, not only did he show extremely bad behavior <laughs> uh, leading up to 1-6 and on 1-6 where he did not do what he was constitutionally bound to do, which is protect the citizens of the United States. He fomented the insurrection and he let it go on and didn't do anything about it. Now in the case that's brought in Washington, D.C. around that, He's threatening the judge. He's calling their names. He he's doing all the stuff that the magistrate judge told him he could not do. So they they go into court uh, last week for a hearing on the eleventh, and he th- th- admonishes Trump's lawyers again, saying, "Look, he can't do this." This weekend at the Iowa State Fair, he doubles down. He continues to be obstinate. He continues to be a jackass. He continues to do 
behavior that under normal circumstances, if you're threatening the judge and threatening the prosecutor and possibly trying to leak information about the case, trying to influence the jury, you would normally be either sanctioned, normally put in jail, you know, so for you to sit on some ice until the trial. Here's the hard question. What does Judge Chuck can do? Does she, she was, she was firm. She said, I'm not going to have this. You don't run your campaign in my courtroom. Do we have, or does the judge have the leeway to treat him like any other defendant, even though everybody keeps saying that's what's going to happen, that he's no better than anybody else? She has the leeway, Ed, and I think she has the obligation and responsibility to do that. If our Constitution is going to mean anything, if our rule of law is going to stand the test of time. She has to do this. Now, she has to do it with taste and she has to do it considering the appellate process which follows her. She doesn't want to do anything that will give the Trump attorneys a easy road to appeal. So she has to do things in a very uh, courageous and yet cautious way to ensure that he is, he meaning Donald Trump, is following the rule of the law and is not being treated any better or any worse than any other uh, litigant who would come before her court. That's going to be a challenge because she doesn't want to appear that she is giving him breaks. And she doesn't want to, on the other hand, give him the opportunity for appeal. So she's walking sort of a tightrope line here, and it's going to be interesting. I think we probably have, we meaning the people of the United States of America, have the best judge person sitting in that judgeship seat that we could have right now. She's a no-nonsense judge. She's not going to play games. And when she says things, she's going to mean them. It's going to be a very, very difficult trial for Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, and I also heard that when she was appointed to the court, she was a 98 to nothing vote confirmation, Democrats and Republicans, to put her on the court. So I don't want to hear any uh, uh, bullshittery about her being some biased judge. Unlike Judge Cannon in Florida, who yeah. clearly is in the tank for Trump. I'm waiting for the, the circuit court there to tell her to go sit down somewhere like they did had to do before, uh, because... She's she's basically telegraphing to Donald Trump, you know, that she's on his side. Now, I, I know people say, well, you know, you know, she she said, let's go ahead and move along with the trial or whatever. However, she didn't even know that you could have simultaneous grand juries. How the hell did she become a judge, Val? Uh, but let, let me stop before before I before I get wound up. This is a good place to take a break. And when we when we come back. I want to switch gears. I want to talk about something that happened in Alabama that everybody's been talking about for the last week. On the way out, you're going to see a, a clip about Donald Trump and him threatening the judge. And then we're going to talk about Alabama in the riverboat on the way back in. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this. Here is the post that Donald Trump made. He was reposting a right-wing extremist, Mike Davis, and Donald Trump writes, Judge Tanya Chutkin, an Obama left-wing activist judge in D.C., whose husband also got appointed by Obama as a D.C. judge, openly admitted she's running election interference against Trump. Let me repeat these false and defamatory statements one more time because it is such a vicious lie that Donald Trump and Mike Davis are spreading, stating that Chutkin is openly admitting she's running election interference against Donald Trump. She said nothing of that sort. In fact, what she warned against were these exact types of attacks 
these exact types of misinformation, these exact types of efforts to interfere with the judicial process before her court. Recall on Friday there was another deadly shooting at a local elementary school. According to authorities, the suspect acquired the gun from the family member's home before using it to take the lives of innocent children and teachers. Store your gun securely, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Developments tonight in the investigation. Police are now charging another person, this time Mary Todd, with third degree assault, making her the fourth person now facing charges. A 21 year old turned herself in today, expected to make her first court appearance tomorrow morning. Earlier this week, police also charged three men with third degree assault. That now viral and massive brawl broke out after Riverboat co captain Damian Pickett, the man that you saw struck that just now in the white shirt, a, asked a private pontoon boat to move so that his boat could park. Pickett, a black man, along with a 16-year-old white young man, were victims in the fight. Was, we were doing our Tonight five is- to seven cruise last Saturday. Coming into the dock, and I noticed there's a lot of boats at the dock. And I noticed that one of the pontoons is too far back for me to align my exit ramp with the, I mean, our ex, my exit gate with the exit ramp. So I say, okay, well, so I blow my horn a few times, boop, boop, and nothing happens. So I, I did that a couple, another time, nothing happened. So I got on the PA and I said, uh, folks in the pontoon boat there, could you please move your boat up a few feet so I can pull the, into the dock? Nothing happened, no response at all. I did that maybe five, six times and it still hadn't moved. So I said, okay, so I said, listen now, I've got to get these people to dock. I've got 200 passengers on here. I need you to move the boat forward. Still nothing. So I said, okay, well, um, I'm going to have to call the police. Mm. And the police are going to come down here. And if you've got alcohol on your boat or whatever, it's going to be a bad day. So let's just move the boat up and avoid that. Still, still nothing. This all so I said, okay, the PA so system. I called the police. You're saying, you're saying this to them. They can, they're within earshot. You call the police, they still don't respond oh, yeah. until this moment when you have your co-captain yeah. get off and that's what he's confronted with. And welcome back to our second segment of the deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is uh, Monday, August 14th, 2023. We're glad you decided to spend some time with us. Please um, share this with folks. Um, we want to build a subscriber base so you can always subscribe to the feed. Uh, if you go to the dealwithedclark.com, you'll see the feed there uh, will post how you can subscribe to the feed. That way you don't have to try to go look for us. You just subscribe to it. And anytime we're on, you'll be able to go and listen to it or look at the Val's uh, handsome face uh, either way. So, you know, Val, uh, on the way out, we talked about the, uh, the whole attitude and behavior of somebody like Donald Trump and how, it sort of spills over into society at, at large. On the way in, we saw a clip about the Alabama riverboat uh, incident. Uh, it's been played over and over. We saw the brother throwing his hat. We saw the guy swimming across the river. We saw the fight that took place and, and the whole aftermath. And I think it's much larger than the fight that ensued. It is the whole attitude of this white entitlement. And a lot of it, it, it is, is, you know, what I think black folks have been saying for years and years. And I think it's why black folks reactions to it is that I've been seeing all these memes with, about the chair. <laughs> I, I saw somebody had posted one with Martin Luther King holding the chair. Um, all kind of things. A lot of them funny. But when you get to the core of it, Val, it's not funny at all. Uh, this man was attacked, the black co-captain of the riverboat. He was just doing his job. Uh, In the clip we saw coming in, the captain, the guy who was driving the the boat was a white man who said, he radios to the shore and says, those people need to move. Can you ask them to move? And he did. And by all accounts, he asked them politely at first. And they bowed up at him. And, and then eventually led to a fight, and it spilled over to other people in the crew taking up, up for him, and, and I think justified. And again, I don't, I don't like violence, but the violence was provoked by the white folks who would not move their boat. And then you, you, you have this aftermath of all these memes 
<laughs> online and all this other stuff. And I think that's not nearly as important as the attitude. Like, and like I said, like the attitude that Trump displays and so on and so forth. Can you talk to me about your more visceral reaction to, you know, seeing what happened? And then this whole notion of this white entitlement and white privilege where he wasn't going to move his boat because his Negro told him to move it. It's It's been that way. It, uh, you know, in my time of growing up back in the late 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, you saw that all the time everywhere. Today is you think that it's, it should be a little different. Uh, then you see incidents like this and you realize that it's not uh, because these people grow up in segregated environments. Uh, they go to segregated schools, might as well be when you only got two or three black people in a school of several hundred. They grow up, go to school in segregated environments. Uh, they go to work and they're in a segment, a section of primarily all white, where all the decisions are made. They go back home, they live in all white neighborhoods. So when they are confronted, whether it be land, sea, or air, by somebody other than all white, and sometimes it doesn't matter if it's majority white, they feel entitled. They feel you're coming after me for what I got and you're not giving me credit. You're not giving me credit for who I am. You're not realizing that I'm the authority, regardless. It, re it reminded me of a movie that I saw uh, with uh, Danny Glover. Uh, it, 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 it was called The Buffalo Soldier. And at one point in this movie, uh, one of the people uh, was sort of trying to arrest some rustlers. And one of the guys said, well, sir, I don't know you uh, may be out of your uh, territory, your jurisdiction. He said, son, my jurisdiction is wherever I happen to be. And that's how some white folks see it. Their jurisdiction is wherever they happen to be, whatever circumstances they happen to be. And so this white boy, these white groups, it didn't matter where they were or who the authority happened to be or what the circumstances were, they were still white dead. And that's where you get this type of reaction to things. That's when you can throw the law out of the window. You can throw custom out of the window. This is about clear frontal racism. Anybody who tries to paint it another way is just wasting time. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that because uh, the, the just the watching it just made me sick. It just harkened back to again, not that long ago in our lifetime, Val. You know, uh, black black folks were murdered, beaten, you know, for trying to vote, register to vote, for marching, for killed because some white person said that a black person spoke to him a certain way. Uh, you know, extrajudicial killings, lynchings. Uh, for, you know, just the accusation that you maybe spoke to a white woman, all kind of stuff. It harkened back to all of that stuff for me. And and like I said, you know, when I think about it, you know, I'm not quite 60. I'm, I'm knocking on the door. But uh, it's clear in my head, Val, uh, 1968, uh, being in, in D.C. as a one of my earliest memories is stuff on fire. Well, it was on fire because Martin Luther King was assassinated. That was in my lifetime, right? The Greensboro massacre was in my lifetime when the Klan drove up and it was on the news on WRL <laughs> and WFMY in Greensboro. They had to film that day. They drove up and shot these people. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it harkened back to that kind of thing, that, that entitlement, which also brings me to another point you made. It doesn't matter if they're black, white, green, or whatever. Some people have this entitlement, entitlement mentality. And it spilled over in Kentucky. And I know this really hurt your feelings, Val. But your, your best buddy, your favorite senator, Mitch McConnell, was booed at an event. So let's take a look at that. And let's talk about poor Mitch. 
So I'm out. <laughs> well, you know, Mitch was pretty brave. He kept on with his speech. They said that he needed to resign and, you know, they just booed him the whole time. He just read off his sheet and he kept going and he, he, he you know, he did a yeoman's job <laughs> at, at getting through his speech. <clears throat> but there's something about the behavior of these folks. Not that Democrats don't ever boo people or protest or whatever. They're just so nasty with it, even amongst themselves. So here, here are two questions. Uh, what does this mean for Mitch? Are there enough Trumpies to make his life miserable uh, from now on? And it might just be the end for him, not just because of his health, but because he he's not a Trumpy. Two, what does this behavior say about the Republican Party at large? Is it going to be able to survive having had Donald Trump as the leader of the party? Second question first. No, <laughs> they won't be able to survive having had Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is going to have to reinvent itself uh, and I liken it to what happened to the old Whig Party, uh, which was a forerunner of the Republican Party. Uh, Republican Party will come back, but under a new name. Uh, it will not be called the Republican Party. And a lot of those folks who Mitch calls to be, boo will remain in the Republican Party. It will be the old Republican Party. But once a new party is formed, these people will start to lose power because the only power they will have is the primary in the Republican Party. And then that will wane because of a new party taking hold and drawing away some of its members. Uh, to answer your question directly, uh, the Republican Party, as we know it now, is dead. And we're just waiting for the dirt to be thrown uh, over the body. But it's dead. It can't win anything nationally anymore. The only way it has a chance to win is through chicanery, through fraud, uh, through corruption and deceit. That's, that's the only possibilities that they have of winning. And because of all of these trials that's going on and all the attention is going on, to those things, it's going to be more difficult in the future uh, to do uh, the deceitful, fraudulent things than it ever has been in the past. But the Republican Party is going to have trouble uh, attracting newer, younger people. And it ain't just because of abortion. It's because of a lot of things. It ain't just because of student loans. It's a lot of other things that while young people rub them the wrong way, that they are going to be disinterested in becoming a part of something like the Republican Party. So uh, they their last final bell is being rung right about now. They're in trouble. Yeah. You know, here's the other thing, Val. Here's another clip I want you to see. This is at the Iowa State Fair. And, and people who know me know I, I was back and forth to Iowa a lot for a long time working with FEMA. I worked in the Midwest is one of my assignments uh, uh, and, and have a lot of good friends still in Iowa. I was just there a month or so ago in Ames, Iowa. But this is at the Iowa State Fair, and then we'll talk about From it. From Iowa. Today, Donald Trump and his closest rival, Ron DeSantis, facing off at one of the most crucial political litmus tests, the Iowa State Fair. The Florida governor, still struggling to chip away at Trump's commanding lead, was heckled on stage. Talk to me about what you're hearing um, and seeing across Iowa. A plane over the fairgrounds, even flying a banner teasing, be likable, Ron. And as DeSantis stopped to flip pork chops and burgers, voters chanted for his opponent. How do you close the gap with the former president? I think Iowans want to see you. They want to be able to kick the tires and they want to know that uh, you'll fight for them as president. So, so Val, one of the things they do at the Iowa State Fair is they have all these opportunities for politicians to mingle with people and so on and so forth. 
Donald Trump goes and he 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 flies in, he stays there an hour, he does his Donald Trump thing and talks jump for the most part, and then you know leaves, right? Uh, uh, he he has a, a colored guy <laughs> next to him. Whatever, I won't I won't even get into that. But the other parts of the clip we saw the various candidates who have no chance, Elder, you know, uh, uh, Vishwami, uh, <laughs> DeSantis, yeah. you know, the whole parade, right? Uh, they go to the Iowa State Fair. They sit up there, in this case, with Governor Kim Reynolds, and, and, and they have this open forum thing, right? And in and, and, and one of the clips there, you see how, again, disrespectful they were to DeSantis, which doesn't hurt my feelings because I think he's an asshole. But 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 he, again, here here's the question. Iowa still, for some reason, gets all this focus. And the you know who won Iowa the last time, pal? Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Uh and and I want to say uh uh Huckabee or somebody won it the time before. And, and those people the Iowa caucus is not where you select the president, but the Republicans still put so much effort into Iowa and the Democrats have decided that South Carolina is going to be their showcase event. So here's, here's the question here. Why do they still focus on New Hampshire and Iowa where it's all white for the most part? And it's really weird the way they do it in, in Iowa with the caucus thing where they have multiple rounds of voting and all this other arcane, you know, old timey shit. Uh, why why do they still parade to Iowa, Val? Yeah, well, it's a kind of thing that you should ask first. Why did the Democrats leave? And you've already answered that question, but I'll get on it in just a second. But you know, it was a place where conservatives do well. Uh, where you got white bread America out there. So if you can win in Iowa and New Hampshire, you are sending a message that the conservative white vote is something that you can compete for. You may not win at all, but you are definitely a a competitor if you can win Iowa and New Hampshire. So that was the reason people wanted to do that. Democrats decided that this was not their base, that uh, African-American women, African-American men, Latinx, uh, people, other peoples of color, and progressive and liberal whites were their base. And why have something in New Hampshire and Iowa when that demographic that I just mentioned is very sparse in those two states. So they might as well go to the place where it it looks like uh, quite a few people may represent what you're gonna be going after uh, in the other 48 states. Uh, Last time I checked, I think South Carolina was about 27% black. And uh, so that's more representative of if you can do that well, if you can win South Carolina's, primary, you have a good chance of winning primaries in Georgia, in North Carolina, in Alabama, Mississippi, and in in Texas, in a lot of the old Confederate states, even Virginia, you have a good shot at winning the Democratic primary in those states if you can win South Carolina. So that's what the uh, Democrats are thinking. And I think very smartly so. And they should not put Iowa and New Hampshire ahead of places like South Carolina when Iowa and New Hampshire uh, could be lost in a general election and Democrats could still win. Yeah, because you're only going to get a few electoral votes in either one of those places. I, right. I spent I spend a lot of time in both places. You know, the best thing about Iowa is the, the pork chop on a stick at the state fair and going to see the butter cow. That's that's kind of cool, and then and then going to the livestock uh, exhibition where the kids from 4-H parade their cows and sheep, 
Yeah, I, and I'm being, I'm being funny, Val, but I attended the Iowa State Fair multiple years, and, and I'd be sitting there, and I was like, you know, it ain't it ain't much else to do out here. Nope. So, so that's actually the big event for a lot of families that live up in, you know, Mason City and, and, and you know, some of these far-flung places out is to go to Des Moines to go to the state fair every year. That's their big thing every year. And, and so they get to go see the politicians. They get to go eat the pork chop on the stick. They get to go eat the sweet corn, blah, blah, blah. And that's and, and show their animals. And, and, and that's still the biggest thing going in Iowa. And then in New Hampshire, uh, you know, I've unfortunately spent a lot of time in New Hampshire, too. And and, and uh, you can, you know, I mean, it's nice, idyllic looking towns that are, you know, started in the 1720s and they're still around and they got all these old buildings and stuff. But there's no black people there. There's nobody else there. So why would you make that the centerpiece for you know, choosing who your president is? I think it's crazy. Anyway, I hear some music. So let's take a break. And when we come back, I got I got to talk about a problem that the Democrats might have from this guy named Hunter Biden. And then we want to talk about the wildfires in Hawaii and anything else we can get in. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this. Message. He's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those beans smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. And welcome back to our third and final segment of the deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. You know, Val cracks me up in the breaks, folks. Uh, I can't tell you what we talk about. It, it, it's, it's hilarious, though. So. But Val, I said on the way out that we had to talk about an elephant in the room. And let's play a clip of the troubles of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's attorneys told the court it was federal prosecutors who reneged on their plea agreement. That deal has been in jeopardy since a federal judge said last month that she would never neither accept nor reject it until both sides addressed her concerns over the terms of the agreement. This filing comes days after Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who has been investigating the younger Biden, as a special counsel. NBC News Justice and Intelligence correspondent Ken Delanian joins us this morning. Ken, good morning. Do the comments... Hunter Biden's attorneys making this new filing suggests that the case could end up indeed going to trial? Good morning, Jose. Absolutely, that's a possibility at this point. Not an inevitability, though. Uh, one of Hunter Biden's lawyers, Abby Lowell, was on one of the Sunday shows and said that they still would like to craft a plea deal here, especially, I think, given the fact that we have evidence from some of these alleged whistleblowers who investigated the case that there are potential felony charges on the table for Hunter Biden if the Justice Department. So, Val, now there's a special prosecutor. I don't know if it's any different than what they had before. They had assigned a prosecutor to the case. But but my understanding is now that it's special prosecutor status, that this person could possibly file in multiple jurisdictions. Before, he was kind of limited because he was in Delaware. Uh, but in the clip, the attorney for Hunter Biden says that here's the problem. Uh, everything fell apart because it just wasn't the deal wasn't structured right. They came in good faith. Uh, it's a, it's a tax case. He paid the taxes off the gun charge. I mean, how many people get a gun charge because they use drugs that 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 normally doesn't happen. 
And now that they appoint a special prosecutor, the Republicans who said they wanted one are not happy about it. What the hell's going on, Val? So here's the question. Larger question. Will Hunter Biden's troubles now with the special counsel and this being drug out even more, how does this impact his father, the president, Joe Biden, and his ability to conduct the campaign? Well, it, it doesn't really right now. That's what the Republicans are hoping for. They are hoping that this special prosecutor is Ken Starr 2.0. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that you must realize in these type cases, that a special prosecutor cannot make a decision that through the process of discovery, I have uncovered another crime, but I'm not going to uh, prosecute or bring that up because I'm supposed to be over here talking about a land deal, okay? No, they have to deal with that if they find another crime has been committed. And that's where I have a problem with the special prosecutor. When you give somebody the uh, authority to be a special prosecutor and you point a direction saying, this is the guy or gal that I want you to investigate. This is a, what I call a 100% true and innocent uh, type of investigation. In other words, this person has to be purely innocent their entire life in order to escape this. If they've ever done anything wrong anywhere, they can be brought up on charges by this special prosecutor. And, and that's, when you look at it in those terms, that's unfair. Who could escape that? If you turn anybody's life upside down and, and have unlimited resources for discovery, how many people are not going to have something that they don't want to be exposed that may be criminal? Now, having said that, they're going to find something on him just like they did Bill Clinton, if it's no more than perjury. They'll find something, but I doubt very seriously if it'll have anything to do with Joe Biden. And that's what they want. That's their primary goal. Secondary is that even if they don't find anything by the November election, they want to be able to say that, yeah, Trump may have his legal problems, but so does Biden. They are talking about this, and we think that he's involved in X, and they've already found Y, and there's reason to believe that the daddy was involved in that as well. So, you know, this is a corrupt family from start to finish, and he's just as bad as Trump. That's their secondary thing, is they want to be able to say that Biden is as bad as Trump. So let's not hold Trump's indictments and convictions and sentences against him. Yeah. That's where they're coming from. Yeah, you know, Val, it, it brings me to mind this other clip I saw, and I think I still have it in the clip pool here. This is Larry Elder, who's one of the, the has-beens. Uh, he's one of the colored ones who's running, <laughs> running on the Republican side. Uh, he, he says that there should be some rules against families taking money. Let's look at that, and we'll talk about it. President, but it's to sign an executive order to stop all this graft. All this Hunter Biden stuff, Eric Kushner stuff, this is nonsense. And I'm going to be sitting down with my lawyers to make sure we can do it consistent with the First Amendment. But there's got to be something done about this. Harry Truman said, if you go into politics poor and you come out rich, you're stealing. Also, I am proposing an amendment to fix. So Larry Elder actually makes a good point, except for he goes overboard and starts saying the Biden family's corrupt. But he said that Jared Kushner made too much money while he was in the White House. And that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump should be disqualified from running for president is that he made money for his family. By all accounts, Jared Kushner came away with $2 billion. And he was supposed to be the architect of the Jerusalem uh, agreement to reopen the embassy in Jerusalem and so on and so forth. And supposedly he worked, helped work out the deal with United Arab Emirates and Israel so on and so forth, but fail. Clearly, 
he was over there making money for himself because he came back with $2 billion, $2 billion. As far as I know, the biggest number that they talked about with Hunter Biden was $10 million in total. He hadn't paid taxes on some of it, and he finally paid the taxes. It, so it's a completely different thing. So here's the question in this. How do you tell this? Because Democrats are horrible at, you know, doing the counter-programming, right? Republicans are good at piling on and all this other nonsense they do. Democrats aren't good at that at all. What they'll try to do is explain it, like <laughs> I just did. You know, he, you know, Jerry Kushner had $2 billion. And then the Republicans go, well, they're all crooks then, right? You know, is there any way to counter-program this? Or do you just let it go and, and let the chips fall where they may? First of all, you, you get to your talking heads and you tell them, if you don't have to, don't bring it up. <laughs> you know, if you don't have to, because that's what Republicans want. It, it, they want it gaslighted. They, some, they want somebody talking about it all the time because it, as in the media business, we call it having legs. They want this subject to have legs. They want to keep it going so that it stays uh, in the news. And some news organizations like CNN, I'll call them out, uh, they do this kind of thing all the time. They're trying to become the new Fox. And uh, they are trying to be as conservative as they can. So they're trying to make money too off of their commercials. And so they come up with things because the worst thing for certain news uh, outlets, uh, Ed, is to have a Biden runaway in the general election. If this thing ain't close, they lose a lot of money. So the closer they can make it, the more money they make. And um, most people, most sane people will tell you that uh, Joe Biden uh, is up in the polls against Trump or anybody else they would throw at him. Uh, so their job, the media's job, is to try to bring Biden down or put some question in the minds of the voters about Biden to make the race a little closer so that they can make more ad money. And uh, uh, we need to see through that and don't be caught up in their gaslighting and just say, hey, man, it ain't about that anymore. There are tons of other subjects you can be talking about. Yeah, that's what really bothers me, Val. You know, you know, I spent my time as a covering the state legislature early on as a young <laughs> enthusiastic wannabe reporter. And I, and I said, I ain't cut out for this. Uh, I, 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 I want to be a talking head and a columnist. And, and that's how I met you as a columnist for Chapel Hill News. And then eventually, you know, landed in radio uh, where I, you know, I just run off at the mouth and on podcasting now uh, in this environment, because there is a problem with news, air quotes, folks who aren't listening, <laughs> that, that the news is very problematic for most people because they've caught on to this whole horse race aspect. It really ticks me off. I get up in the morning, I'll turn on the TV, and then it, every time they're talking about, oh, uh, Joe Biden's in a dead heat with Donald Trump. Well, how the hell you know that? Well, because we polled 700 people who are likely voters. Who, who did you call? You didn't call me. And, and it's even more difficult because I remember back in the day when I worked on polls, I, I used to I used to be one of those people that called for the Elon University poll when I was <laughs> way younger and and people had a home phone and and you would call and you try to call after dinner. Right. While they were watching Jeopardy, where they might pick up the phone and, and try to solicit and get them through the five or six questions you had and, and go through the different cross tabs that you would ask a, a, about different things. Who the hell has a home phone now? And then if you call somebody's cell phone, I got robo killer. You're not getting through to my phone. So you're never going to ask me. So how, how do we even know these polls are true? I guess I could go on and on about that, but I won't. 
in the time we got left, here's two other things I want to talk about, uh, Val. And one is tangentially related to who has the upper hand here. Uh, this is Sean Hannity, and then we'll talk about it. I'm, I consider myself pro-life. I believe in the sanctity of life. But I think politically that there is Republicans have got to say, as Bill Clinton once said, I never thought I'd quote him, uh, <laughs> rare legal and i'd add the word very early in a pregnancy uh that seems to be politically where the country is maybe i'm wrong uh but we'll see that that vote in ohio was pretty pretty sobering and that was fox news host sean hannity conceding that the republican party has become too extreme on abortion Hannity's blunt admission came at the end of his primetime show. The conservative host and his guests were analyzing the results from an Ohio ballot measure, results that gave Democrats in a conservative-leaning state a clear political victory. Ohio, we did it. We did it! So I do this so you don't have to, Val. Sean Hannity tells Mike Huckabee that, hey, I think being focused on abortion has backfired. And, and Sean is talking very slow and muted and not very enthusiastic. The dog caught the car, essentially, mm -hmm. is what Sean is saying. Uh, and it goes back to your point. It's not just about abortion. It's about a lot of things. And Sean intimates that they need to talk more about the economy. They need to stop talking about hunting so much and blah, blah, blah. He sees the writing on the wall, Val. Uh, but... The horse race aspect of the news and all that requires that they do this bullshit that they do all the time where Jim Jordan does his theatrics in, in the committee and Comer and then the Speaker McCarthy gets up there and says that an impeachment inquiry is likely. There's no such thing as an impeachment inquiry. It's not an official thing. He's just saying that to throw red meat. And then the news media runs and tells that. I, I won't even have you comment on that, but I just thought it was uh, informative to see that even people, the Republicans, Sean Hannity knows the writing's on the wall. They can't keep doing that. They, there's no there's no currency anymore on the abortion thing. They won, right? Well, what are you going to talk about now? Well, you got to talk about Hunter Biden. There's nothing there. So what are you going to talk about then? Well, you talk about the economy. Well, the economy is doing good. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> you know, you, so it just snowballs. Here's the last thing, Val, in the uh, last few minutes we got. Uh, here's a clip of what's going on in Hawaii, and let's talk the about island. it. At least 96 people are dead, uh, many more missing at this hour. Nearly 2,200 acres have been destroyed. However, there is some good news amid the tragedy. The fire in Lahaina is now around 85% contained. Now, those fires completely destroyed the historic town of Lahaina. Uh, families there have nothing to return to. You see the aftermath on your screen, piles of burnt metal and ash. But amid the tragedy, people are still finding ways to come together and to help each other through the next few days and weeks. Tony DeCopel is there with more. As we walk toward the water, we see it. Another sign of the unspeakable destruction not far away. Hey, how are you? The Maui magic is full of tourists on most days, but now it's full of relief supplies about to depart for Lahaina. The families there have lost nearly everything. We have families and friends. Everything's gone. Yeah. Everything's gone? They ran out of their house with only a shirt on their back. A lot of people just barely... Well, I was supposed to go to Hawaii for a vacation, but I ain't going now because the place I was going has uh, essentially burned down. And it doesn't look like anybody will be going to Maui anytime soon, uh, maybe decades. Uh, and one of the, you know, I, I don't know all the genesis of the wildfires is bad, but 90 some people are, so far have been found. FEMA's on the ground. I talked to some of my FEMA friends last night. Uh, some of them will probably end up there. Uh, and one of the problems, Val, uh, and, and, I, and I think I've talked to you about this before, is that there's so many natural disasters in the United States. And, and this wildfire is, is, is horrendous because you got this loss of life and you're on an island. You can't go anywhere, right? You can't blame the people for being there because they had, you know, how do you get off? And people were jumping in the water and all kind of stuff trying to save their lives. Here's the, here's the, the rough part of this. 
uh, these disasters cost more and more money. And Americans are not all that generous when it comes to helping people. And the law that covers disasters called the Stafford Act, and, and I know it backwards and forwards, and I won't quote from it because I used to have to talk about it in my job at FEMA. I would have to rattle off, you know, why we couldn't cover something or why we could. But here's the long question of that, Val. You know, uh, America is a big country with a lot of people and there's a lot of disasters that go on. Is there a better way to, you know, help people after these things are over? The cameras come for a couple of weeks and we know they're going to leave. And then it takes a decade or more for these people to recover. What? what, what why, why can't we do this better? Is it because Americans don't really care about other people that we've got this built-in thing that is me, 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 and, and we can't recover from these things well? That's part of it, Ed. It has to be uh, simply because we're so competitive. You know, capitalism is baked in our bones. It's baked in every decision we make about everything. Uh, and before we can... Uh, make a decision about which road to take, which choice of actions we may want to embrace, we we first have, have to talk about how is it going to affect me, as you say? Uh, how is this decision going to affect me? What can I get out of it? And uh, when you start thinking along those terms, you miss the key element here, which is helping others. That's what it's supposed to be about. It ain't about you. Uh, you know, some people with means, with money, they go in and say, well, I want to write a check, but I want to make sure that uh, it's going to be tax deductible, you know, uh, if I do these kinds of things. Uh, still, it's about me and about my taxes. Uh, so instead of saying I, I need to give some money to some of these people, uh, regardless if it's tax deductible or not. So it, we, we got some problems along those lines, Ed. And until we make some internal critical changes, uh, it's, it's going to remain that way. And this whole thing about the fire in Maui uh, is just one example of what we have to deal with. Uh, the whole piece about climate change, uh, the, the, the hot overbearing temperatures, here uh, is a precursor to the cold weather that we're going to find out we're going to have in a harsh winter coming next winter. Uh, all of those kinds of things, uh, ice caps melting, uh, sea levels rising. Uh, you know, they told us about this when we started using fossil fuel, but nobody would listen. We thought it was more important to increase the number of billionaires than it was to save the planet. And now we are finding out that that's not the case. The planet is more important than the number of billionaires. But I digress in getting back uh, to people and making decisions. We need to start doing things because it's good for other people. It's good for our communities, for our nation. But more importantly, folks, it's good for the planet. Yeah, That's the way we need to start thinking. But USA, 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 we don't give a shit. That, that you know, uh, so that, that, that's the, that's the, that's the uh, rich people mantra and the Republican mantra right now. And it's causing us a lot of problems. You know, I normally ask you, Val, what do we have to look for coming up in the, in, in the week or whatever? I'm going to ask you something different. I'm going to ask you for a prediction. Will the fourth indictment come down this week? And when it does, What's going to be different this time compared to the other ones since this is a state case and not a federal case? The indictment will be coming down, Ed. And the, what's going to be different is something that you and I have discussed is the Supreme Court's not in it. And uh, this is going to put a lot of pressure on the defense team for uh, Donald Trump. And I think he is probably smart to be worried more about this case than the others uh, right now, because this case can be the one that really takes away his freedom. And all of the uh, dominoes that he's put in place, all the tumblers that he's let fall on his behalf, 
may not be there to help him in this case. So yeah. this is a very, very serious case that bears watching. Yeah, I think you're right, Val, but I'm hoping for a federal conviction and him coming to Butner so I can come visit him <laughs> and put money on his books and bring him uh, cookies. So, yeah. I mean, we live in North Carolina, but so folks who, <laughs> who listen to this show don't know Butner is one of those federal facilities where celebrities go like uh, Bernie Badoff and Martha Stewart and and uh and you know don't, don't forget the German prisoners of war. Uh yeah, that too. And uh and so so I'm hoping Val for him to get to go to Butner because right. I, I would love to drive by there and wave at him while he's walking the yard or whatever. Anyway, I, I, I'm acting silly now. That means it must be time for us to go. Look, folks, this is what you need to do. Go uh, encourage people to sign up and become a subscriber. You don't have to do anything. Once you once you become a subscriber, you have the feed. Like I say, anytime we're on, you'll get it. You don't have to worry about looking for it or anything like that. Uh, uh, go back and read my piece about the wig party in the ending of the wig party. It's in the archive on all my written stuff. And then come back for us uh, uh, next time we're on uh, for another edition of the deal. In the meantime, like I always tell you, go out and do something good for somebody today. And I really do mean that. And we'll see you the next time. Bye.